Afterward, the little man came in and asked, Now, Madam Queen, what is my name? She first asked, Is your name Kunz? No. Is your name Heinz? No. Is your name perhaps Rumpelstiltskin? The devil told you that! The devil told you that! shouted the little man, and with anger he stomped his right foot so hard into the ground that he fell in up to his waist. Then with both hands he took hold of his left foot and ripped himself up the middle in two. Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Joining me once again is J.R. of The Pod Hand. Recently, J.R., you and I recorded an episode about a phenomenon we're calling squeakor, basically sci-fi fantasy fiction that is quippy, fluffy, moralistic, fanish, Joss Whedon-esque and it likes to present itself as important activism, but mainly it's just middle-of-the-road escapism. And that episode drove people insane. It got a lot more attention than I ever expected. I sincerely thought I was shouting into the void here. But something about that episode, especially about the name Squeakor, really, really touched a nerve. That episode is our most listened-to episode. It had Within a week of us putting it up, it already got like three times the number of listens that the rest of our episodes usually have. Some people fucking loved it and wrote to us saying, thank you. I finally feel like there's a word for this thing I've been noticing, but I haven't known how to describe. Thank you so much. I got a lot of really positive emails about it, including from marginalized writers who felt that there was something wrong and and they felt like they couldn't say anything about it because of the way you get punished for speaking up or or for going against the crowd. And some people were absolutely furious about it and have publicly denounced me as a Nazi and also as a man for some reason, which is news to me. And a lot of other people are looking at it from the sidelines going, what the fuck are you talking about? What is happening? Why are you weirdos talking about something called squeak horror? You should all just go outside. So (laughs) because this got so weirdly big, we thought it would be a good idea to come back and revisit the topic and look at some of the discourse this has created and have sort of a part two to this squeak horror discussion, a squeakwell, if you will. So, JR, thank you for coming back. How are you feeling about this? I, I got a little bit stressed out by how much attention it got, but you looked like you were having a fucking blast. Well, first of all, Miss Benedict, why do you share a name with a famous American traitor? Like, what kind of middle school fucking nerd are you if you really think that's an own? 
Well, I thought it was- You share the name, he betrayed <laughs> us in the Revolutionary War. No one cares. Who the fuck are you, Johnny Tremaine? Come down, man. Also, you're white. Yeah. Which is true and fine, but also that's an own for some reason. Yeah. Also, white Latinx, you know, that doesn't- No? Okay, fine. Those don't that, exist. That doesn't count. Those don't exist. They're not they don't real. Exist. Argentina they don't doesn't exist. exist. Puerto Rico definitely doesn't exist. Yep. It doesn't exist. It's not real. Um, it's very strange. Yeah, it's very weird where a bunch of people who are significantly whiter than me and who have ancestors that came over on the Mayflower are like, well, you're just a white woman. Like, well, you're an even whiter woman. <laughs> what are you talking about? Shut the fuck up. White people love to call white people <laughs> white people. You are even whiter. You it. are purely wasp. You're powder. It's one thing we can't stop you're doing. You're a warlock. White people. <laughs> I know. You're, you're white. You're also white. You 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 culturally appropriated that away <laughs> from people of color. It's rude. They're calling you Karen, which is also adopted from AAVE. Right. Right. And the irony of like a, a, an upper middle class sort of middle-aged white woman calling someone else a Karen for making fun of their bad writing is kind of like, what? It, it's like throwing a fit because Starbucks doesn't have enough caramel sauce today and then calling the barista a Karen. You've got yep. this backwards. But that's kind of how it is now. Like The only people who still use the word Karen are generally the people it was invented to describe. Yeah, once it filtered down to... Now it's being used by right-wingers, which is very funny. You you were kind of collecting unhinged responses and having a very good time. And did you expect this to get the kind of response that it got? No, I didn't because, you know, nothing... <laughs> it's, it's funny. It has to be funny. But no, I did not expect that level of response because it is the right good podcast. It has a, a smallish faithful audience but it does not have yeah we have a really small audience generally yeah and to see authors that i've read try to insult me personally is amusing it's very funny because i didn't <laughs> try that hard <laughs> that's really all no, there is we to did it. not try at all we were very lazy we half-assed that we quarter-assed this I mean, if I'd known it had that much attention, I would have been more rigorous in the analysis and, and tried to define Squeakor on a, a more acceptable, like, there are people who, who want this sort of term to be very analytical. They want it to have, like, specific right. traits and tropes that make up what it is and to say clearly, like, this is Squeakor, this is not, and here it is because... Ultimately, it's just marketing, right? All these terms, you know, grimdark, hope punk and stuff, they're all marketing. That's all it ever was. Right. So to define it as Squeakor, the intent would be to eventually recuperate it as marketing, right? But because we didn't give a clear definition that nobody can do that. You can't say, I am Squeakor, I'm reclaiming this because it's too nebulous to do, right? Yeah. And I don't think that's a disadvantage. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, I mean, granted, yeah, people complained. You two were a little sloppy. Like, yeah, it's a podcast. Sure. It's not I like mean, a, I, an academic lecture. This, yeah. I didn't submit this for peer <laughs> review. Sorry. You can do that if you want, but I don't I don't give a shit. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it's bizarre. I never, it, and, and that's kind of how it goes. I've, I've found a lot of the time with, with writing, like the thing you really lovingly, carefully craft gets very little attention. And then the thing you sort of throw out, toss off, off the cuff, just gets all the attention. It's like, the fuck just. Oh okay. yeah. And that's the same is true. If you ever like, <laughs> if you ever make a tweet that goes viral, which I have, it's never the yeah. one that you expect. It's never yeah, the one, it's often one that has a slight into. typo in it too, and you're like, "God damn it!" Yep. Or you make a shit post Photoshop, and you're like, wake up the next day, and there's like twenty five thousand retweets, and you're like, "What happened? What happened?" <laughs> you can't yeah, plan what, for a shit post Photoshop. That sounds familiar. I don't yep. know what you're talking about recently. <laughs> oh, you've made some good ones. A gray Photoshop. Gray. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that that was that's been taken for blood knife, so that's pretty cool. That it is very wonderful. Art. It's it's, in, it's inspired a poem that's much better than the Photoshop that oh, seemed to have resonated with people. Poem. Weather Goose, awesome poet. Yeah, legitimately great poet, and we'll have to link to that poem in the episode notes. But anyway, why do you think it took off the way it did? I again was not expecting anyone to notice and now jeff vandermeer's following me on twitter silvio yeah. moreno garcia was talking about jonathan scalzi is beefing with me and when i told that <laughs> to my brother who's a, a really big sci-fi fantasy fan he said like holy shit that's a huge deal raquel <laughs> it's what how why how did this get so huge well my theory and it's not a theory it's just a hypothesis that uh is not peer-reviewed either it was just in the air like there's always well, not always, but there has recently for the last five or six, seven years been a dominant mode that has not been identified or named. And a lot of people who both love it and hate it notice it, but they didn't have a name for it. And that's probably the only reason that I think it got that much attention. Because when you name something yeah. that's in the air, in the culture, people are going to respond in one way or another to it, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen people, some people try to name it. I do think Hope Punk is an attempt to try and name it. I've seen the the word, the expression tour wave. I've <laughs> seen someone refer to this current time as the rainbow age and none of it stuck. But for some reason, Squeakor really, really, really stuck. It It stuck people in a good way and also in a bad way, but it stuck. It is, I, someone sent us, me a an article in on like a Swedish zine where they're talking about it. Someone was recently interviewed in the Journal of the British Sci-Fi Writers Association talking about it. it we have a know your meme page about it. It's it, yeah, it was very I bizarre. Did not to be expect honest. this. It because really stuck with people. It was an in joke. It was just a joke, really, like the, as a term to begin with, but it caught on. With us, at least, with our little group. Yeah, was, I think it was Halvi in our Discord used it, and we went like, "Oh fuck, that's a perfect term. We got to use it." And and we just used it as a jumping off point to talk about how there is a dominant mode of fiction of short sci-fi fantasy right now. There is a sort of style and trying to get at it. And I sure touched a nerve. Although I don't think it would have gotten as far as it did if we didn't have this amazing bizarre meltdown screaming melodramatic semi-misogynistic 
question mark response from a lot of fucking Hugo winning. Oh yeah, big, I mean, con- big writing contract awarded writers. <laughs> I mean, they accused us of being misogynistic, and they they called us every name in the book, yeah. which is very amusing. Yeah, right up to Nazi and fascist, and. It's be- like part of that is because the the squee portion of it sticks in people's craw, craw because they associate the word squee with teenage girls and thus to say squee in a pejorative way means you're doing misogyny. And that's not really what I associated the term with. Yeah, I associate it just with fandom in general. Yeah, like squee has been used since the 90s, the early 90s. I think it came out in the news groups in like 30 years ago, right? And it wasn't gendered then for sure. I mean, Jonan Vasquez used Squee as the name of this comic back in the day. For me, it didn't have a feminine association. Maybe it does now, but I'm tuned out of that, admittedly. But Squeeing is something that is gender neutral. It is an embarrassing display of... mm, I would say cut this part, but we define Squee before as as a sort of triumphalist fist pumping moment right Right. that has always been part of escapism to some degree and that is not inherently a negative so i guess my complicated i guess my thoughts are a little more complicated than than just squee being bad but yeah i mean one of the people who got really mad at us was some sort of fan podcast that had at least for a while, a segment on their show recurring, calling it like, and now the squee section where they'd get very, very excited about some book or something that was coming out. Well, what podcast was so that? If you're going to be offended by this word, you're using this word to describe yourself. Un- unless this is something like, no, you can't use it. This is our word. Right. Which it is. is their I- word. I'm sorry. That's no, they, squee is not a slur, guys. You're going to have to get over that. It's not a slur. I think that's part of the reason they were so pissed off is because squee is their word and yeah. we just said it in a mean way. <laughs> that's all, that's all there is yeah. to it. Now, did did you notice something weird that for some reason people seem to get madder at one of us than at the other? Yeah, very and curious. Which was it and what reason could it possibly be? I have no idea. Why would anyone Look, ever be mad? How, how, what reason what? would they be better at the woman unless they're biased in favor of protecting Canadians? I think that's probably that's it. right. That's right. No one can yeah, ever be mad at me. It's a pro bias. It is. It, it it appalled me how they how they talked about you and how they they have all these not overt and yet very obvious ways of signaling these these horrible racist and misogynist things. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's this kind of an interesting thing that happens where they'll simultaneously, like, deny your your identity or your gender or whatever, while also using the dog whistles of yeah. that identity against you, like saying, oh, you're not really, you know, you're not really Latinx, while also saying that right. you're a violent, unstable person who doesn't belong here. Like, oh, wait, hold on. I did see that. Or like, I mean- white Latinos exist. Exactly. No white Latinos exist. They know that. That's the problem. <laughs> That's what makes it so evil is that they know that. But they're they're right. using that for cut points, right? They're not stupid. They're just evil. Yeah, there's something there's really difference. gross about it of saying you're not really such and such identity unless you agree with us. It's like they believe that they own whatever it is that you are. 
And the person you know, talking like, was it's their like, property, it's their thing to use, and there's something yeah. really fucking gross about that. Yeah, it's uh it's evil. It's diabolism, it's devil worship to me. <laughs> because they're doing it on purpose, right? They're not dumb. Oh yeah, and, and they do it very often. The way people talked about Isabel Fall, they were on one hand, these and these were a lot of the same people, were one on the one hand saying like I don't really believe you're a trans woman. And on the other hand, talking about her exactly the way that TERFs talk about trans women. Like this person is pretending to be something they're not to invade our space and hurt us where we're vulnerable. Like that sounds an awful oh, lot yeah. like what TERFs say about trans women in locker rooms. It's almost fucking yeah. identical. It's the exact same logic. So, so how, how do you say you didn't know she was a trans woman while talking about her in this way that was very obviously transphobic and transmisogynistic and they do it over and over and over again i've seen over and over and over again there's a real tendency to call latinx writers dangerous and unsafe and there's a very very long history i don't need to explain this in too much depth of that is a common latinx or anti-latinx stereotype of you know oh, you're violent you're unstable you're unsafe you, you you're not you shouldn't be here you're hysterical you're too loud but that's yeah. the level of liberal racism where they're like, oh, yeah, I totally get that uh, Get Out was making fun of liberal racists. And they're at that level where they get that, but they're still liberal racists. <laughs> they're the Get Out enjoyer level. Or liberal racist or liberal transphobe or liberal misogynist because, good God, I, I, I well, really can't overlap. stress enough how misogynistic contemporary science fiction, no matter how feministic they claim to be, no matter how many strong female characters they put in their books, it's an incredibly misogynistic community. And you can tell because every time they get all in unison angry at someone, it's a woman. Oh, yeah. Every time. It's a woman, except for George R. R. Martin. He's the one exception. But well, whenever they're thing... randomly picking some person for the two minutes hate, it's a woman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Always. I mean, I've seen it a billion times and it's it's always the same and it's always the same people behind it. It's I was going to talk about this later, yep. but like in a lot of ways, we anticipated the reaction because we had to couch our words in in what should be obvious that we we love diverse fiction. We love diverse authors, uh, more perspectives and, you know, yeah. More, I spent more a very long time on that episode talking about how, how frustrated I was seeing how little respect the genre has for stories by Latinx authors that talk about Latinx issues. I went on and fucking on about that. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about that to death. And I think the people that that were smart enough to listen, they definitely heard that. But a lot of the people who just, um, they just... They either believe so fully in horseshoe theory that they call us reactionary or they completely ignore the fact that we are leftists. They, yeah. I think quite a number of them straight up didn't listen to it or only partially listened to it and just decided this person made me mad. So obviously they're a bad person. They must be a Nazi. That's it. And that's, that's really it. that that's that simplistic shit is the thought process. And then they just sort of passed it on and this great snowball of bullshit ran down a hill and that's what happened. I, I found it deeply disturbing how many writers responded to this thing without listening to it, without reading the transcript, because one of our listeners very, very thoughtfully 
created a transcript, which takes a lot of fucking work, a lot of time. So, hey, if you didn't want to listen to it, you could read the transcript. It was available. And how many people responded to it without reading it, it, without listening to it? And then other people based their responses on these lazy non-responses. And it was just this chain of fucking bullshit. And as a writer, as a critic, you should listen to or read the thing you're critiquing. This is really fucking basic. Really, really, really basic. If you're forming an opinion on something, especially if it's enough to publicly denounce a person and call them a Nazi, you should probably actually like read the whole thing out of some sense of fucking professionalism or being an adult. And astonishingly few of them did. Mm-hmm. And it's it's saddening and disappointing, but not surprising either, because I, I guess if these people actually read shit, they would write better than they do. Yeah, I mean, the nature of social media is to create these dog piles and these, these tempests. And there are a lot of people I blocked outright just for being morons, right? Just you read one tweet and you realize that you're never going to want to interact with them on any level ever again. Yeah. But there are a lot of people that sort of just followed the crowd And, you know, I don't bear them any ill will, really, because they're just doing what social media has conditioned us all to do, which is just to freak out about everything all the time. And I've done it. God knows Mm -hmm. I've done it. We've all done it. And then I've had to walk it back, and I felt like shit afterward. And that just happens, and it sucks. And, you know, it doesn't do anybody any justice. Mm -hmm. But it does happen, and it happens to the best of us. But if you're a writer, if you're a critic, if you're a person who's presenting yourself as a serious voice in literature, you have a professional obligation. Oh, yeah. If you to, have a blue check. To do your fucking homework. Yep. If you got that and blue check and you're making like seven figgies a year, you do have a responsibility. Yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry to say, like, you, you got that. Yeah. Yeah. You have it. And... There was another side of it that was disturbing. It was people who didn't listen to it or or read it giving these really half-baked responses and then saying, and you don't need to listen to it either. It's not worth listening yeah. to. It's not worth reading. You shouldn't read this. You shouldn't listen to this. Like I did. Re- deliberately yes, saying, don't listen to a woman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like several, several of the blog responses and at least uh, Jason Sanford, uh, they yeah, were just straight up one. like, don't don't listen to her. Don't listen to this podcast. Just listen to my interpretation. Don't listen to this person. We'll say person because we don't want to call her a woman because we don't want to admit we're kind oh, yeah. of misogynistic. Yeah, it's just like it's, it is like that though. Just like I am the rational person in this scenario. Don't listen to the original source. Just listen to me. Keep on sleeping. Sleep now. Yeah, it's really gross, and this protection of ignorance is ugly and. A writer shouldn't do that. A writer or a critic should have enough intellectual curiosity and intellectual integrity not to do that. And it doesn't surprise me, but it it, it is just further reaffirming my absolute disgust for this group of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the facts of the matter are, know your meme and Redditors explained Squeakor far better than if anybody in the blob. Have more integrity than you. If redditors and the know your meme, I love you. I take everything back. Better attention. 
You did it. If only a bunch of professional SFF authors had the professionalism and intellectual curiosity that a random fucking Redditor had is a sentence I never thought I'd be saying. Oh, good Lord. But anyway, um, let's address people who pay attention. Yeah. But but let's talk a little bit about some of the dumb criticism. We we talked a little bit about oh God, why do we hate women and neurodivergent people? Which is yeah, they were also accusing me of hating neurodivergent people. Which it is very bold of you to assume that I am neurotypical. Regular listeners of this podcast can probably guess that that is not the case. <laughs> it, it's interesting. People seized on the diversity thing a whole lot, and I think part of that is. Well, let, we can take this out of context and say, ah, you're, you're just a chud. But I think for a lot of people, this episode did articulate something they've been feeling for a while, but weren't quite sure how to express. I, I, I am a little sad that people seized only on the diversity aspect and ignored the stylistic critique, because something I really would like to bring back into criticism and discourse on fiction is to talk about style and craft because we don't talk about that at all. Part of Squeakor is referring to every story as a list of identities and tropes and that's it. And it doesn't give you a sense of like the vibe, the style, what's the story even about. It's Mm -hmm. just, here's the list. Here's the checklist. Dink, dink, dink. It has these things. Don't you want it? Like, no. Yeah. What What is this and, book? And that's something we skimmed over it, but it is definitely due to, you know, the TV tropesification of marketing of these works where right. you'll have tweets being like, oh, this new novel has enemies to lovers. It has blah, blah, blah. It has tropes. It's marketed in terms of the tropes that it contains with no actual detail mm-hmm. of the style or the emotional content or the themes. It's all just the most shallow analysis possible. And a lot of works are marketed this way. And now, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that a lot of works are now written that way. Yeah, I understand marketing that way. It sucks, but marketing is kind of a dirty thing. And it's just going to be that way. Capitalism sucks. But to have the artist thinking that way is disturbing. It's describing your book as a product, right? Because that's how you talk about products. Here are the features this has. Here are the features that this new computer has. It has this. It has that. It has a touchscreen. It's got this. It's got this kind of speakers. It's got, you know, this many gigs of RAM or whatever. And that's, that's fine for a product description, but not for a work of art. And, and, and another part of it too, this, this, commodification of it and because Squeakor is very much about the commodification of fiction I think part of the reason it there's this touting of diversity is that when you market a product you market it as new is improved which means the old stuff that's bad you don't want that anymore that's bad yes it's irredeemable and that's how we talk about older works of fiction oh it's bad it's problematic but when you do that you inadvertently I think bury a lot of older diverse fiction, older women's fiction, older queer fiction, because mm-hmm. if we acknowledge it, then maybe our our new thing isn't as improved it could be. Whereas real artists who actually give a shit genuinely about diversity and culture often see themselves as part of a lineage and they honor their forefathers and foremothers. Like Alice Walker worked her ass off to rescue Zora Neale Hurston from obscurity. She 
brought the women's books back into the public consciousness. She reprinted them and re-released them. She even found her unmarked grave and bought her a proper headstone. Is anyone in Squeakor doing that? Are, are any of these people looking like, hey, here's this forgotten lesbian sci-fi writer from back in the 1950s. Her work was really fucking cool and it never got the, the recognition it deserved because it was such a male-dominated era. Hey, let's take a look at it. No, it's all these lazy, lazily tokenized pre-existing white IPs. We're taking H.P. Lovecraft yet again, and we're going to put some diversity in it. It's like, well, why not? Why not look for some, I don't know, Horacio Quiroga, right? There's a Latinx horror writer from the late 19th century who's not very well known in the United States. And if you have this genuine love of like diverse fiction, you could be bringing his work back and bringing it back into the public consciousness and sharing it with American readers and seeing, look, there's this long legacy of brilliant Latinx horror fiction. But no, because that won't help you sell the new stuff. And yeah. putting the word Lovecraft on your new mediocre book will help sell it. But putting the word Quiroga on your mediocre horror book won't help sell it because that's not a brand name that's profitable in the United States. There's a transparent marketing angle to this that does bury older work and doesn't encourage people to revisit older things because the marketing angle is that this is the new and improved product. This is the new thing. It's not in tradition. It's, it's not in a, a, a literary tradition. It's, it's in a product tradition of a new thing that's better than the old thing. Yeah. And that is kind of a shame. That's, that's a marketing necessity of, you know, especially digital marketing, social media marketing, where everything has to be new. And, and that is okay to market stuff like that. But when that's how criticism functions, when that's how writers talk about writing, when that's how editors and, and critics talk about writing, then we have a fucking problem. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the state of criticism now, I mean, it couldn't get worse. I think we're at the nadir of criticism. It's bad. Maybe that includes it's us, bad. the bad people, the bad critics that say mean things. Yeah. That you, that's, that you swear words, but like normal swear words. Like we don't say, say fuck. fuck. We don't say fuck a doodle do or anything. <laughs> We don't say fuck waffle. It's just fuck because we're big girls and boys. We weren't raised on Hamilton. No, fuck. Thank God. We don't, we don't do the flumpty foo. Yeah. And that, that was another thing that I got kind of bothered about the response is like, oh, you really hate diverse literature. First of all, all of the writers that we dragged were white and we didn't name very many writers just because I didn't want to be seen as bullying if we're picking on, if we're naming a writer who had two sales and a semi-pro mag and has made a total of $60 for her writing. Like what, what good would it be for me to dunk on that person? She's a small fry. The people we named were by and large, all, all Caucasian, predominantly male, overwhelmingly white or wealthy and either award winning or award nominated like we were punching up there it was very strange seeing the response where people are accusing me of punching down on jonathan scalzi a millionaire <laughs> man he's literally a millionaire he signed a multi-million dollar publishing contract with tor like how he's goliath here trying to claim that he's david it's very very bizarre 
Like, bro, why why do you even care what some podcast says about you? Fucking log off and go swimming in your Scrooge McDuck vault. We were also accused of singling out those authors because they didn't write masculinely enough. So we were actually doing oh a misogyny and also like an effeminate. I did a misogyny homophobia. against Chuck Wendig. I guess. Yeah, we were we were <laughs> we were calling Chuck That's Wendig amazing. an effeminate man. We were doing a misogyny by insulting a man because he was not manly enough. That was an That's actual criticism that I heard or read rather. Yes. That's amazing. Chuck Wendig, honorary woman. The first honorary thing about it. That's wild. They, t- they took away womanhood from me and they gave it to Chuck Wendig. <laughs> that is truly special. Our ne- they're going to make Jonathan Scalzi Puerto Rican next, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Chuck Wendig is femme coded. I'm sorry. <laughs> can't make fun of him now. Amazing. That's truly, oh my fucking Jesus. It's ridiculous because of all the criticisms we made, they had nothing to do with being traditionally masculine. No. I mean, that's patently obvious. We didn't say it was unfit. We didn't say it was girly. We just said it sucked. We were not comparing it it to like Norman Mailer or some like hyper-masculine shit. No, no. Come on. Why can't you write more like Cormac McCarthy? (laughs) Now that would be cool, but that's not going to happen with them. That and and our recommended writers at the end were very many of them female, queer, POC. You know, Abby Mayotis and Ted Chang, who we both highly recommended, are are both people of color. Yeah, I mean, those are the people that I would recommend. I mean, I distinctly remember recommending three or four women authors. I don't think I recommended yeah. a male author aside from Peter Watts. I don't think so. No, I think it was mostly like. Yeah, mostly female authors. But they didn't listen. You don't have to listen just to form an opinion about something. Just make shit up. It's cool. Just, just make it it's up. very reasonable and professional. Just, just anyway. close your eyes and imagine what we said and how bad it was and then get really mad and then post about it. Yeah, make up a guy. That's what makes a great post. You got to make up a guy or yeah. you got to make up two guys because Raquel is no longer a woman. Yeah, I'm a guy now. I'm a man. <laughs> Okay, so that being said, I'll talk like Elizabeth Holmes now. Um, it was a little, another aspect of it that was really weird was seeing people insist that it's not a movement in unison. And it's the same group of people who give each other Hugo Award nominations insisting in, as a chorus, we're not a movement. We're yeah, not I mean, a movement, we... but simultaneously... We're not a movement, but also you can't name it because you're not in a movement. When you guys were trying to call yourselves the rainbow era, that's kind of sounded like a movement. We're not in a movement just because we have similar style and similar sensibility and we have similar political beliefs and we work together and, and go in the same direction in unison. That's not a movement. That's a going together thing. It's not a movement. <laughs> no. Oh, but yeah, that was such a strange criticism too. You're not allowed to name a, this movement that's not a movement because you're not in it. Like there, there's no rule here. We can name things if we're not in them. Most movements are not named by the people in them unless they have a manifesto. Yeah. Right, right. And in order to write a manifesto, these people would have to admit that they're sort of together and, and, and they're not willing to do that. But yeah, like the gothic that was an insult that was not a name they chose 
but they kept on, they held on to it. They, they decided to keep it. Suffragettes, that was an insult. An anti-women suffrage person started calling suffragists suffragettes, and they just decided, okay, that's actually pretty cute. We're going to keep that. Yeah, it happens in uh, in music all the time. Like shoegaze was coined by a yeah. critic. Heavy metal was coined by a critic, not by a musician. I'm going to guess like, grunge was probably not chosen by the people who made it. <laughs> probably not. I, I, I have trouble. I'm guessing punk wasn't either. Punk se- kind of seems like that started as an insult, I would guess. Knowing the etymology of punk? Yeah, I've never looked into it, but that sounds about right. Yeah. So the idea that you can't name something if you're not it is very silly. One of our previous guests was quoting uh, a writer named M. John Harrison, who was originally talking about the new weird. The struggle to name is the struggle to own. So I think this is why there was such an emphasis on you can't name this. You can't name this. It was... If somebody else names it, if somebody else names this trend, and if that name sticks, that means they don't own it. That means they don't own sci-fi fantasy. And that's terrifying to them because I I think that this is a small and influential clique of people and they do get to decide who's going to win an award. But beyond that, they really don't have that much power. I mean, I'm I'm sure I've probably gotten myself blacklisted from a number of sci-fi fantasy magazines by doing what I do, but were these people going to publish me anyway? You know, the kind of work that I do. Is that something that would appeal to them anyway? Probably not. It is a very small crowd. I mean, the reason the sad puppies were able to upset the balance is just because they had like 50 more people for a particular voting strategy. It's incredibly small. It is a small, small pond. Small and, I don't know, are they getting smaller? I don't know. But they're they're very small. I don't know. All I, all I know is, like, the final number of, what, the final number of votes for the Hugos were, like, one to 2,000. Yeah. That's a tiny number. That is really, really small. So I, I think there's a fear here, just understanding that they're not that powerful, they don't really own sci-fi fantasy and they have outsized influence because they've been able to sort of seize on influencer culture and they've been very good at promoting themselves as I'm the voice of this. I'm the voice of feminism. I'm the voice of social justice. Mm-hmm. But they have very little power and there's not that many of them. And I think there's this constant fear they live under of being of losing control of that that bully pulpit that they have. And when somebody else can come in and come in up with a sarcastic name that describes them and no one stops them, it's like, you don't own sci-fi fantasy. You don't own it. And if the fact that that name sticks means now everybody else knows that you don't own it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that about sums it up to me. Let's see. Another one of the really dumb criticisms was, you're just jealous of our success. You're jealous. You're calling a squee because you're jealous about how successful you are. You know, no one actually knows who you are outside of your small group. Also, I wrote the hottest piece of film criticism in the year of 2021. That was me. I wrote an article about Batman's penis, and it was translated (laughs) into a dozen languages around the world. Yeah, that's So I'm doing great. That's a big W. 
I'm really proud. My ridiculous Batman's penis article, no, everyone is beautiful, no one was horny, was quoted in the New York Times, the BBC, newspapers in Italy, Indonesia, Spain, Turkey, France. It was translated for a prestigious film journal in the Netherlands. It was translated into Arabic. It got me on NPR. My debut short story made it into Gardner Dezois' final anthology. He chose me as the best speculative fiction story of the year 2017, beating out a shitload of professional, experienced writers. I'd say my work is doing well. People like it. People genuinely like what I have to write. I don't have to step on other people or declare my rivals Nazis and drive them into the closet in order to get my work seen. It's, it, it is organically enjoyed and organically appreciated. Yeah, mercifully, <laughs> the same is true of a lot of the authors we love who are routinely lambasted by this same blob of uh, sci-fi fantasy click, right? They can succeed yeah. without those people. You don't need them. You don't need their approval. You do not need their approval. They're a big fish in a small pond, and there are other ponds. There are other bodies of water. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't get any direct accusations of, of you're just envious of my success because, I don't know, maybe they can sense that I don't really care. Like, the sour grapes argument doesn't hold yeah. water to me. It's just projection. It doesn't hold these water are people... to either of us. Because these people always wanted to be in the club, even if it's just the AV club. They wanted to be part of the scene. They wanted to be centered. <laughs> and, you know, they wanted to be, they wanted geek culture to dominate. And now it does, which is wonderful for them. And God's honest, I just don't want to be part of their group. I'm happy without them. I don't think they're cool. I don't want to spend yeah. time with them or go to their award shows or riff flumpty foo fuck crustables with, you know, I don't want to take Miranda. a selfie with them with the Raytheon robot, but you know, no, I don't want to go to nerd prom, the Raytheon nerd prom. Thank you. I'm good. I don't have nothing to be envious of aside from money. And that's only for like four people who make money. Yeah. Oh, another criticism. Why were we so mean? Why were we such jerks? Now we were pretty rude. We were very, very catty. I will not deny that we were catty. We were dismissive. We were sarcastic. We were kind of mean. And I'm not going to deny yeah. that. And here's why I was, here's why I'm such a fucking asshole about this stuff. Now, in sci fi fantasy, it is common and acceptable to call a writer a racist, a misogynist, a rape apologist, a queer phobe, a groomer, a Nazi, a predator, a failure of empathy, a violent abuser inflicting psychic harm upon the audience, and so on, simply because you didn't like their story very much, simply because you didn't like their fictional story. This is routine. This is normal. This is the normal mode of criticism in sci-fi now. You can accuse any writer whose work you dislike of a litany of very, very serious sins. It's become common to drag a writer out of the closet because you weren't comfortable with the way they portrayed queer characters. There's that one famous instance of a writer who was forced to publicly disclose that she had been molested as a kid when a critic complained about her novel. When a college mm. student made a sassy quip about wanting to keep a white millionaire lady's YA romance novel off her school's reading list, because what she actually wanted on the list was a serious nonfiction book about racism in the criminal justice system, a group of well-connected, award-winning, rich, best-selling writers, including some Hugo winners, launched a fucking disgusting, vicious harassment campaign against the girl, simultaneously accusing her of misogyny while calling her a raggedy bitch. 
quote unquote. Oh, yes. An angry, obscenity-laden blog post in which a woman said that she wanted to see an elderly writer burned to death in space was nominated for a fucking Hugo Award. And I don't have to remind you about the helicopter story controversy. So after all that, after you have normalized this kind of cruelty and viciousness, no, you do not get to ask me for civility. Civility is gone. You killed it. You do not get to chase people back into the closet and then cry for civility when someone calls you squee. (laughs) Making fun of a writer's prose style is a hell of a lot nicer than misgendering her and calling her a Nazi. So that's why I'm mean, because you don't deserve civility. You do not deserve politeness. No, they they are the catty group. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck you. For even thinking you can ask that for that. It's well, so, they're the ones it's so that much like calling. the conservatives going like, you need to be, you you stupid liberal shit lib bitches need to be more polite and civil toward me. Like, <laughs> no, fuck you, dude. Cry bullies, yeah. They won the mainstream and they're still just mean about it. Yeah. I mean, the same group has been calling people edgelords and grimdark edgelords grimdark. and uh, making trauma porn and poverty porn and misery porn and all these terms devoted to dismissing and insulting any kind of darker author or edgier author reading their works in bad faith and saying oh you're just trying to hurt me you're an edgy asshole trying to hurt my feelings and you that's cause harm to me a marginalized person yeah and that sort of accusation is pretty serious and it's lobbied all the time without even thinking anymore i mean they, they wield social justice language like a toddler who just found dad's gun it's incredibly <laughs> careless and they don't fucking care who they hurt and they keep hurting people and they don't stop doing it. So no, I'm not going to be fucking nice to them. No, because they're not nice people. They're no. just not. I mean, they, they, but they think of themselves as nice people. And what do we really call them? The squee. worst I can say, we call them squee, but they're obviously like, they're parochial. They are conservative. They are mm-hmm. not very good at writing. Them? They're, they're not, <laughs> they're very, not good at writing. very good at writing. They are groupthink neoliberals. Yeah. They are... Our criticisms are pretty tame, right? <laughs> Ultimately. Yeah, we didn't accuse anyone of psychic rape or anything, the way they accuse everybody else of it. Yeah. We didn't accuse any of them of doing violence to us directly. We just said they suck. We just kind of said they were shitty writers and that they kind of suck. That was it. Yeah, and for a podcast of, you know, such lowly stature to reach multiple New York Times bestsellers with storied 30-year careers only to have them flip out. That was funny. That was wonderful. That, that was, was pretty uh, funny. <laughs> that went further than I thought. That was some splash damage. I never I'm imagined. I'm kind of proud of it. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Including anyway, uh, Jonathan Stolze. I know, God. I just wanted to bring up that one but, thing where he... He got into an argument with Simon McNeil after the uh, blog post about Squeakor. Yeah, that was so And that weird. was fair. That was so funny. Like there's hundreds of Simon like, McNeil was a lot more like sedate and thoughtful than we were. He really put things in a in a very thoughtful, calm, measured way. Yep. And Scalzi was, yeah, fucking was a great, furious. It was a great rejoinder. And Scalzi yeah. got into it with him online. 
it was very funny. Like, there's hundreds of identical, like, 50-year-old software guys who are Scalzi's core audience. They're all reading these very simple tweets from McNeil, and then they're going like, I don't understand this. It's just word salad. It don't make no sense. Damn, yeah. you're really telling on yourselves. McNeil is very erudite, and he knows a lot more about theory than I do, or, like, pretty much anyone does. But one thing he's not is yeah. hard to understand. Maybe no, if you'd no, read something other than Scalzi, you might have a better vocabulary <laughs> for this stuff. That's all I'm saying. Read something other than yeah, like it, 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 Python for dummies or whatever the fuck. It's a rhetorical strategy very similar to the kind that far right people use. I, I see Tucker Carlson will use that where he'll look at a mildly complex but not super complex statement by a, a leftist politician or like a CDC official about Corona protocol and then act like, I don't understand this. This is impossible to understand. Gender is a social construct, but you feel you're really a woman deep down and you need surgery for it? I don't get that. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's impossible. Like it's No, it's not that impossible. You're just pretending to be fucking stupid so that you don't have to engage with any of the arguments in it. That's it. It's a thought yeah, there killer. Is that. I'm not sure I'd identify with them all with trans misogynists, but they are playing up their... their faux stupidity well, well i mean just in order, not in order to demand more misogyny but it's the same rhetorical strategy where you act like a oh dumbass, yeah exactly basically it's to demand where you more act like something and that's more not complicated is impossible yeah it's to exhaust yeah. you it's the tactic is almost like sea lioning it's to demand more explanation right and get people to trip over themselves and hopefully catch themselves in a contradiction right Anyway, moving on from really, really fucking dumb responses, let's go into some thoughtful responses, some thoughtful criticism. So let's first take a look at Farah's essay from Long Pale Road, a quick thought on Squeakor. So Farah writes, I don't think these criticisms are wrong, just that I think there is still plenty going on in fiction that is characteristically not this. Like trans girls evading rules of crowdfunding sites to publish transformation porn, or even anarchists in communes making zines. One problem I have with this argument is that as much as it rails against the mainstream, it still takes the premises of said mainstream to define what is the state of the art. This limits the scope of one's fight of self-expression to merely dethroning the dominant rather than transforming the circumstances which form them. At most, this cathartic rage can be harnessed to push some writers you think deserve fame up the New York Times bestseller list. But isn't there more we can demand, even as creatives? Yeah, I did have a bit of a response to that. I love it, and I can see the truth of it. This was posted yeah. shortly after the debacle, and I didn't address it all that much online except to retweet it and tell Farah that I agreed with her. But this in particular is really important, because I've always been a booster of smaller art. Indie films, bandcamp music, self-published prose, small press stuff, zines, webcomics, Twitter artists, anyone that's an independent, right? 
you know, I watch Hollywood movies and, and read the bestsellers to keep up with the conversation, but they rarely grip me as much as an indie thing does. I have so little interest in the publishing machinations and the bestseller list. Uh, God, the life of a professional writer or like an aspiring professional, like those Gary Dickhead writes accounts, all these like coffee, tea, <laughs> snark dickheads. It's so choked off. It's so robotic. I hate the culture of it. And Farrah's right about all of that. I grew up in geek and fandom circles. My first art was fan art. My first fiction was fan fiction. But I think looking back that I took the the opposite lesson that a lot of people did. Like I was never looking for mainstream validation, either for myself or the stuff that I liked. I I, I always saw it as a community or a subversive community, a, a subculture or a counterculture, as opposed to this shark angling for clout, this mainstream zombie-like hunger for validation. And I always liked smaller art, stuff that was unfiltered and raw, sometimes amateurish or messy, like black metal recorded in a garage, web comics done in MS Paint, like things like that. And I actually ended up meeting everyone in the Ripe Good community because of an author I'd been following since she was self-publishing on like Gumroad. Her first couple novellas came out there. And that was Gretchen, of course, you know, to know her is to love her. So I, I really do right. agree with Farah on that on that point. Yeah. Yeah, Farrah has a very good point there. I, I, I can't really argue with that. <laughs> yeah. So let's look at Simon McNeil. Simon had some really thoughtful responses too. He he talks he he refined a lot where we were kind of messy. And he refined a lot in terms of what is a movement, is this a movement? So I'm gonna quote from him. It's not surprising that the movement that right good are gesturing toward in their podcast is nebulous. Most are. Futurists and Dogma 95 are the exception, not the rule, when it comes to artistic movements and an attempt to deny a movement exists because it doesn't have a manifesto that everyone within it has signed on to is just an act of self-delusion. And honestly, a lot of this constructed movement fits very well with the Hope Punk manifestos anyway. Frankly, it requires an act of willful blindness to ignore how squeeze to ignore how screen representation has impacted narrative styles across the last two decades, or how significant authors like Wendig have been influential as trendsetters in this regard. Likewise, it is an act of willful blindness to ignore the triumphalism of Addison and Scalzi in the lionization of liberal progressivism. As I mentioned, uh, Raja Niemi goes so far as to embed this in his metaphysics. The dominance this movement encompasses is diffuse, but aligns with the class position of these authors such that a very bourgeois moral order is allowed to reproduce within literary culture. The alternative proposed by the sad and rabid puppies, varying from a conservative retreat into the past to outright fascism, was roundly banished to the margins by this dominant group, and that's well and good. They should be told to fuck off. But a half decade on, we've seen very little to unseat these aesthetic indicators, or especially these ideological ones. And this includes the adoption of liberal blind spots like a failure of science fiction authors to recognize a Raytheon logo or understand why that is bad. This isn't to propose an all-encompassing dominance. What is being sketched as a dominant movement isn't like Sherwin-Williams covering the world in paint. But the contingent dominance it enjoys is visible and will remain present until some opposing force unseats it. Will anything unseat liberal triumphalism, though? I mean, that has been the default mode of at least the 20th and 21st centuries. Yeah, I sure. Yes. I, I, I say this with zero reason to believe it, but sure. 
but but I do think well, that something you know, will we unseat. Knock on wood, something better will come, not something worse. Because I, there I are think worse we will unseat it. Shit changes. I don't think the current clique is going to stay in power forever. People are going to get sick of their shtick. People are going to get I'd tired really of it. I really not want the, um, the extremely tiresome, tradcath, superversive weirdos to take over. I don't think so. I don't think that'll happen. I don't happen. think they will. No They're one's reading that. To take over. If you look at them, they don't even have, like, they have at most, most of them, 300 followers on social media. I don't think they're going to take over. That no could change with one shit. post by, like, Ben Shapiro. Always got to be on oh, guard God, for ew. these guys. I know. Ew. 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 Gross. Now, there was one thing. I, I do think we probably should have specified in the original Squeak Horror episode that we were thinking more about short fiction than novels. There is more freedom in novels, definitely. There's more freedom to, to ha explore a little more creatively, I think, in novels even though the squeaker stuff does get hype a little bit better, but some you can still break through with some really, really sharp, weird, non-squee novels. But short fiction is traditionally where you cut your teeth, where a lot of professional novelists break in. And it's a valuable, you, you start off by writing short stories and then you go for a novel. And it's a valuable format to practice writing in. You'll learn how to structure a complete story. you learn how to get to the fucking point. You learn how to how to cut the stuff that doesn't need to be in there. It's it's this practice ground, it's a proving ground. It's boot camp, maybe. And if the short story market is dominated by this style, then new writers are missing out on some of the growth that might make them great novelists. Some other responses this generated, and this did, did generate some interesting and thoughtful responses from some big writers. Fucking Sylvia Moreno Garcia, author of Mexican Gothic. Holy shit, we did that book for a book club episode. She responded to this whole thing on Twitter. She had a thread that went like this. I have no idea if there is such a thing as squeak horror as an overriding genre, but I do know that most of the books that get pushed at me, I write for the Washington Post, tend to come with PR letters that emphasize fanfic terminology, shippable, etc., often positioned books in comparison to media rather than other books. It's The Witcher meets Ms. Marvel. Emphasize its commercial potential, the TikTok sensation, and often overemphasize some kind of identification, like it has a queer ace black protag, and they don't tell me the plot. There definitely seems to be a sense of the most desirable aesthetic among the marketers. The problem for me is that it's hard to find the other stuff. Often the books by POC that don't fit this mold don't get the big push, and I have trouble getting copies. However, there is little linking of these titles together. I certainly don't think any specific workshop produces one single dominant aesthetic or that this aesthetic is the most financially lucrative. So, yeah, I mean, I I think when oh, yeah, you said dominant, I know a lot of people interpret that to be like, dominant. oh, this is the only thing. But no, that's not the only thing. But what she's describing here, that sounds like domination to me. You know, yeah, if, mean, if the marketers are pushing way. this are pushing this and burying everything else that's to me that is a kind of soft domination yeah i mean domination requires some other countervailing force you can't be a dom by yourself but that does remind me i was thinking about it before but like obviously the really big selling fantasy is stuff that we don't actually talk about and it doesn't generate much discourse it's stuff like brandon sanderson the epic military fantasy series the the hard magic stuff it's a completely different field than, than the stuff that wins awards 
like it it doesn't win Hugo's yeah. or Nebula's. It's completely ignored by that, even though it sells vastly more copies. It uh, it oh, might yeah. win like the Reddit Stabby Awards or the David Gemmel Awards <laughs> and stuff like that, which is fine, and I have nothing against it. But it it is not dominant in the discourse the way this stuff is, which I, I don't yeah. I, I don't think it's a value judgment so much as just an interesting observation of what gets talked about, what gets hyped up, what gets talked about in in mainstream press, things like right. the New York Times or the Washington Post or the other mainstream outlets that have increasingly gravitated to reviewing sci-fi fantasy, which they did not do like 10, 20 years ago, but now they do, but they are specifically choosing the awards bait, the squee approved people, which is interesting. Yeah. And I'm one of those people who's like, oh, if the, if the mainstream press likes it, it probably sucks because <laughs> their track record has not been good. Yeah. Yeah. Now... Let's see, another comment we got from a member of our Discord. In R&R, that's Revise and Resubmit, for my Pitch Wars novel, asked me to make the lead characters more shippable, with shippable moments. Part of the point of the story, for me, has been showing an established queer relationship as just a natural part of the characters' lives, not the only relevant aspect of those lives. So in this case, we see an adherence to that style kind of pushing away what was supposed to be this organic queer relationship and turning it into something that feels, I don't know if, I know the phrase emotionally objectified might sound kind of weird, but I don't know how else to describe it. Commodified. Commodified, maybe, yeah. Into, into something Because it is literally being used as a marketing cheaper. term. It's yeah. rainbow capitalism. And there's something kind of gross, gross about that, because... I mean, if you're talking about good representation, I think here's an established long-term queer relationship that's going well. I think that's a good thing to show. Yeah. That's a really good thing to show. And make it more shippable. What, is, what does that mean? Make it more shippable. Well, if, if there, it's actually an established queer relationship, then is it a ship anymore? No, oh, that's a good question. Right? Like... My understanding is a lot Doesn't of the, a lot of the rely ships on are the, things that are not relationships. Yeah, it relies on the will they or won't they factor. Yeah. So now it's like, are are you are you asking someone to take these two characters and separate them? You know? That's a good question. I'd Put like in to, almost uh, like more of a queer baiting type of thing instead of an I demand an explanation from the marketing hack who wrote that. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Because mm. it so seems like if you are up, a queer author, yeah. you will be boxed into something like that, or you'll be forced to change your work to be more marketable in that way. Yeah, and there's something really gross about it. There, there's something mm -hmm. cheap and tawdry about it. It's like telling an actress, no, we're going to make your costume a little bit sluttier to get people to watch it. Like, But but it doesn't make sense. I don't feel like she would wear this. Well, tough shit. Show me your tits. <laughs> just kind of feels like that to me. I don't really like it. I got this beautiful email from a by POC writer, and I'm going to avoid saying too many personal details because I don't want this person to get like outed, basically. Mm -hmm. If I can make a listener comment, I think that one thing that maybe not emphasized enough is the level to which underrepresented writers find themselves coerced to comply with the dominant squeak or colonizing force at every aspect of the process. Yes, you mentioned that inserting ethnic characters into non-ethnic narratives sell the best, and I'm inclined, based on my own sales record, to agree, but failure to comply here means not having a seat at the table at all. 
If you somehow make it past that bar, there is a constant overwhelming push to strip out anything too dark, too sexual in the wrong way, not sexual enough in the right way, too critical of colonialism, of capitalism, of whiteness. Eventually, it starts to feel like you are just being asked to be a different person. Because these aspects of you that you have put into your own work are seen as unpalatable, which means you yourself are unpalatable. Bleak. Like it's so, it's bleak. And the the thing that I've heard over and over and over from the sort of squeak core crowd is we love diversity. We love diversity. But if you're taking POC, if you're taking queer authors and trying to cram them into these templates, cram them into these formula. That's fucked up. That's not <laughs> Yeah. That's not helping them. That that's dehumanizing, man. It's awful. Now, but mo- moving on before before we start getting going, I want to also talk about precursors to the idea of squeakor. Shockingly, we are not the first people to complain about the state of sci-fi <laughs> fantasy and to come up with a word for it. There have been words for the thing that's wrong for a long time. And I think there have been people who've named, if not Squeakor, or something similar to Squeakor, or something equivalent to Squeakor. 1991, Donald Keller wrote about something he called the fantasy of manners, basically a style of urban fantasy that got real big in the 80s that tried to imitate the comedy of manners style. It sounds like the use of the phrase has shifted, but in Keller's original article, from what I gather, I couldn't find a copy. It seems to have noted that a lot of the writers who make this stuff were the first generation to grow up on TV. So TV influenced their style a lot. And some of the writers mm-hmm. included in this classification were Stephen Brust, Emma Bull, Ellen Kushner, Delia Sherman, Caroline Stevemer, and Terry Windling. Now, That's an um, interesting criticism at the time. I mean, I've read a bit of Stephen Brust. I've, I've read uh, the, a couple of the Vlad, Vlad Taltos books, and I've read Ellen Kushner's uh, one, at least one of the Sword Point books. And I, it's been a while, but I don't recall too much of the TV influence. But, or at least I, I don't quite get what Donald Keller was was aiming at specifically in saying that. But there was a the, an author that I want to talk about, or a, a blogger that I want to talk about later who coined the term novelistic style. Uh, hmm. Wesley Osem was the, the blogger's name. And he had some really particular notes about cinema and TV's influence on prose. And it includes the use of uh, hmm. cinematic scene transi- transitions, the, the, the really abrupt scene transition with the, usually with the chapter break or the asterisks or whatever. And a really close, close, close uh, third person point of view and general like uh TV style editing of scenes where there will be like a cliffhanger to every scene and flashbacks and flash forwards that are very severely structured the way a TV scene would be. And I'll link it later, but this blogger was not super critical of it. Like obviously many people have written things like this, like uh, Game of Thrones, like George R.R. Martin was a TV writer and his work does show that he's pretty much exhibit A of the novelistic style. But he doesn't ignore the yeah. interiority of characters. He he has right. uh, a lot of thought process and a lot of uh, emotional resonance just in the way people think that you cannot do in TV. So there are both advantages and disadvantages to this. Yeah. But it's, it's novelistic style or novelization style was a, an interesting term for this that actually captures a lot of uh, a lot of the stylistic quirks that we were talking about or that we alluded to but didn't actually talk about that I think is uh, well worth reading about. 
Yeah. Now, um, I'm, I'm looking to 2012, Paul Kincaid reviewing the best of the year anthologies in the LA Review of Books. He didn't come up with a name, but he wrote something that made people very mad in sci-fi fantasy. Holy shit, people got mad at him over this. And it is it is a scathing review. It is fierce and, and devastating. And I'm very glad that my name was not included in this because I wasn't published yet because I would have to like go into hiding or something. But I think he gets a, a lot of what we're saying too. The overwhelming sense one gets working through so many stories that are presented as the very best that science fiction and fantasy have to offer is exhaustion. Not so much physical exhaustion, though it is more tiring than reading a bunch of short stories really has any right to be. It is more as though the genres of the fantastic themselves have reached a state of exhaustion. In the main, there is no sense that the writers have any real conviction about what they are doing. Rather, the genre has become a set of tropes to be repeated and repeated until all meaning has been drained from them. Judging by these three books, the genre is now afraid to engage with what once made it novel, instead turning back to what was there before. We might tinker with the details, but it seems that no one has much interest in making it anew. Woof. I mean, that's brutal, but I think that could also be written in brutal. any year. Because I yeah, don't, that's I don't get the sense true. that sci-fi fantasy or, or any genre fiction now is like objectively worse than it was 10 years ago. But there's always been a tension between pure escapism and the, the hacks who just write for money and churn out, you know, content trademark sign versus the people who are really taking it seriously as an art form. And mm -hmm. I think the main difference now is that digital marketing and social media marketing changes a lot of that. And corporate domination of things like Disney and Tor change the game and skew the balance in a way that maybe didn't happen as much before. But these are all just like different affects. And the, the criticism seems to be the same all through the ages and always was and always will be. Like 20 years from now, people will probably be making similar arguments about uh, hopefully not worse authors, but maybe a lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> There will always be hacks. There will always be people who don't care. There will always be the, uh, the people of the world who just see a buck to be made. And I think now yeah. maybe, maybe because of geekdom's domination of the mainstream, those people have come back in number in a way that they haven't been since like the golden age. Hmm. Yeah. That's my theory. No, no, that's not my theory. That's my hypothesis. <laughs> don't pick it apart as if it was peer reviewed. Because I just pulled it out All of right. my ass. Yeah. Now, there was also a, another precursor to, to squeak horror, uh, Nick Mamatas, who complained that we were just trying to get attention by put, releasing the squeak horror episode, released his own squeak horror episode on his live journal in 2008 when he came up with a term called he called fantatweet. The Marx quote about religion being the opiate of the masses, both what it actually says and how it is usually presented so that it appears to glibly suggest that religion is just a racket, comes to mind when I read Clark's World magazine slush. We receive a lot of stories that I have begun to call fantatwee, a portmanteau of twee and fantasy. I haven't published any, but if you're very curious, a fair number of them end up in fantasy magazine. Oof, dis. Fantatwee <laughs> is fantasy with an ellipsis. The implications of the story and its themes are omitted so that the act of reading, and I suspect writing, is mostly purely palliative. There are two major families of fantatui, the first being the retold unconstructed fairy tale, 
or the, the first being the retold unreconstructed fairy tale. Woo, Those stories that's the recite a fairy tale. Maybe. Sorry, go on. Yeah. <laughs> These stories recite a fairy tale, generally something from Grimm, and very often a retelling of Snow White and sometimes Snow White with vampires. The second type of fantasy are stories about how awesome fantasy stories are. Unfortunately, fantasy is all about second-order escapism. Many great stories have elements of escapism, but also a twist of thematic screw that lets the reader know that not everything is strawberries and cream. Hard choices get made. Misery abides. In the film version of Return of the King, Frodo might have, may have had a big pillow fight with his friends and then moped around the house for a bit. In the book, he was a shattered man, utterly alienated from his communitarian society. That's what you get for saving the world from doom. Fantatouille leaves out the shell shock. In the fairy tale mode, the jagged edges of fairy tales are filed off and replaced with a faux threat. Snow White with fangs, a few more mentions of blood, that sort of thing. But there's no terror, no threat of the horrid arbitrariness that lies at the intersection of fairyland and early modernity. The story isn't renovated or explored or undermined. Instead, what enjoyment there is in the reading of it is the stuff of bedtime. Once upon a time, the end. Read it again, Mama. Nothing drives the story but the prior existence of the story. The new version's theme is nothing more than, Hey, remember this old story that used to mean something? Well, it still used to. Stay tuned for my new story, Icy Equations and Omelas. Coming twenty twenty two. Look, we're gonna do we're gonna do I don't know, we're gonna do Cinderella with robots. Okay. I do remember that. That's why I commented it is a very two thousand and eight thing. That was the thing back then. The retold right. fairy tales. It still like is. The the Xerox infinitely shitty version of like an Angela Carter story. Yeah, that was that that was the thing back then. It was so bad. It still is. It still is the thing, only with added really shallow diversity. Like, oh I'm gonna retell I'm going to retell Beauty and the Beast, but gay, but it's not going to be weirdly, uncomfortably horny. Like, what? Wait, what? Why would you retell Beauty and the Beast without it being weirdly, uncomfortably horny? I'm in favor of a gay retelling of Beauty and the Beast. There's a lot of, there's a lot of subtext you could do that simultaneous attraction and revulsion would be a very, very good way to explore a man's struggling with his own sexuality and being attracted to this thing that's sort of dangerous and forbidden there's a lot to do with that. Yeah, I mean, but fairy tales into themselves. Bells of Duke now very, is like really boring. Yeah, I mean, fairy tales linger because they tell such primal, atavistic, emotional stories. They, they, they tap into your reptile brain, both in the fear and the desire. But, you know, modern stuff doesn't want fear or desire. It, it, is, it wants to make a didactic point. It wants to smugly and glibly tell you that the wolf is bad, which you already know. But it doesn't really sort of engage with why the wolf is hot, you know? <laughs> so it's it's no Angela Carter, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> because the, the, the point now of I've writing these things is different now, right? It is made to make a moral point and, and score a goal against a perceived cultural enemy. And you're supposed to say, right. hell yeah, you got one over on the wolf because the wolf represents toxic masculinity. And that's that's it. That's the only reading you can get from it. The end. Yeah. Now, here's a quote from a Jeff Vandermeer essay in 2007 called The Triumph of Competence. There has been much talk recently about the death of short fiction, or the lack of interest in short fiction, generally in the context of genre, 
And I'd like to suggest, hypothetically, that perhaps ideas of comfort, class, and politeness come into play. I have been reading countless stories over the past couple of years, and despite finding some excellent material, I have at various times felt as if something was wrong that I couldn't quite articulate, some elusive sense of being in danger. Not danger in the fiction, but a danger to fiction. The more I've thought about it, the more I feel that my general apathy when reading a lot of fantasy short fiction today comes from finding it in a profoundly disturbing, if sturdy, middle-class professionalism. The magazines and anthologies are dominated by what I'd call centrist fiction that simply drowns in competence. It's good. It's not great. It's clever. It's just not trying to do more. Or it does reach for more, but in familiar ways. As I thought about this further, I visualized an endless churning sound as thousands of writers typed and handwrote the first drafts of stories destined from conception to be good enough. Good enough for publication. Good enough to pass muster. Good enough to earn an appreciative nod. It was a depressing thought. Well, now that I think about it, there's two things that I would like to see more in sci-fi fantasy and in short fiction. Two things, very simply. Stories where you cannot tell what the politics of the author are. Not to say they're apolitical, but they should be more complicated. Mm-hmm. And B, B stories that are absolutely unadaptable to TV or cinema. That cannot yeah. be adapted. Because they're too literary. And I don't mean the literary in the sense of being dense or unreadable or complicated, but literary in the sense of being interior and communicating thoughts that will not work on TV and using the advantages of prose and poetry to do it. Yeah. It's, it's not much yeah, to I... ask for. And I read stories like that pretty much every day, but they are not the mainstream and they're not the no. stuff that typically wins awards. That's all there is to it. No, no. Something, something I've thought I, about contemporary SFF, it's something that frustrates me and a lot of readers I've spoken to is, okay, so we've lost a lot of the lows like, good lord, 1950s sci-fi was really hokey and cornily written and written in a really cheesy way. I will not deny that. But I think we've lost a lot of the highs, too. Um, Simon McNeil, once again, in an mm. essay called The Problem with the Middle, he notes that there's something that highfalutin, highbrow, high art, avant-garde culture and lowbrow trash both have in common, which is that they take risks. In terms of subject matter, in terms of style, in terms of mm-hmm. technique, they take risks. They feed into the avant-garde. You know, the highbrow artist takes risks deliberately a lot of the time yeah. because they're really thinking of how do we challenge things? How do we challenge the dominant paradigm? The, the sort of lowbrow trash person might take risks just because they're they're churning out so much pulp so fast. They do a stream of consciousness thing and like sometimes something exciting really slips through. Absolutely. Or, or, because they're taking risks because they're like, well, I don't have a big marketing budget behind me, but maybe if I like crank up the craziness, it'll get there. Like Philip K. Dick, right? Like he wasn't a good prose stylist. He really wasn't. His prose was not very good, but his books were so fucking weird because oh, yeah. he's churning things out at this crazy, crazy pace because he's on speed all the time. And also he's mentally ill. And it it made this bizarro, unpolished fucking gold somehow the pulps were like that too yeah yeah the pulps like yeah they were a lot of them were really cheesy but also they were taking some kind of interesting risks and and i feel that way about cinema too about music 
you know, like you have avant-garde composers who are super smart with their music theory degrees, and then you have punk rock, whatever musicians in a garage with a broken guitar, just breaking rules because they don't even fucking know the rules exist. And there's stuff that definitely combines them. There's elevated pulp. There's stuff like... uh, Right. I always talk about uh, Alice Bleak Warrior, which is an awesome highbrow slash lowbrow, but never middlebrow, bizarre... Yeah avant-garde pulp story that i i really love they draw from each other they do but middle yeah. brow what middle brow art does is it it doesn't take risks and it might take elements out middle of high brow yeah. and low art but it sanitizes them and i think that's where we are with contemporary sff there's a lot of elements from high art and low art but it's really bland and it's middle and it's okay and that's fine, but that's never going to show us the way forward. That's not something that innovates or blows our minds. It's safe. And I'm very tired of safe. Absolutely. There's definitely different ways to be you know, safe and unsafe in fiction. Like, obviously, being the most edgy person in the room is not always desirable. You don't want to always freak no. people out and disturb them and traumatize them. That's not always desirable. And that's not always what edgy means. Like, it can mean just a stylistic risk, a strange way of, you know, mixing memory and fantasy and reality in a way that uh, is new and fresh or including bits of poetry or whatever. There's so many ways to experiment in prose and write prose poems and bend the rules, right? So it's not always always about edgelord trauma and stuff like that. That's just a side tangent. Wasn't even very well expressed. I would cut that. Cut it, trash it. Yeah. But... Yeah, like I'm not saying that Philip K. Dick was an edgelord, but I mean, there's creative experimentation too. Exactly. You cannot accuse him of not being creative. Oh, kitty. Hey. Hello. Hello, kitty. Hello, Harley. Harley's grumpy because it's time to give him treats and I'm still talking on the podcast. <laughs> well, one okay, thing that people... Yeah, uh, that was part of it. But one one thing that... Are, uh, people who were very angry demanded was to know like what is specifically like a squeak or text versus what is not and if you mention one or the other it's like well here's all the reasons that what you said is squeak or is actually not and if you say this is not well here's actually all the reasons that it is because they want to confound you that way right they want to catch you in an own and right. i sort of brought up off the cuff of the poppy war as an example of something that does something interesting to say it's squee or not is kind of dumb. But here's why I mentioned it. I haven't read the rest of the books, the, the second and third ones, and I probably won't. But the first one is, she's a young author who is working within a young adult-inspired inspired framework, right? It still is in certain ways, like a, a meritocratic girl boss, liberal institutional success story about a girl who goes to a magic school and becomes an important person in the military, blah, blah, blah. And it was written by someone who went to Oxford. So, you know, she's doing fine. So it's very situated in that, Mm -hmm. but it also tries to grapple sincerely and quite brutally with the, with historical war trauma of the 20th century in Chinese history. Hmm. To me, it's so freewheeling and strange in the way that it deals with it. It almost seems like an accident of a young author breaking rules and accidentally creating something new. And I don't know if that, Hmm. you know, I don't want to condescend to her to say that she did it accidentally, but it has the sort of brightness and strangeness of of a young person breaking those rules so she's in in a way she like subverted this liberal triumphalist bullshit that we're talking about and she ended up with a pretty despairing 
portrait of like how people lose their humanity during war and the horrible real politic choices they're forced to make. And sort of like you start off the book thinking it's going to be like a young adult novel that's super palatable and, and hits all the right notes. And by the end, you wonder if you've just read like Joe Abercrombie fucking with you. It's, it's interesting. It's really interesting. And, and I don't, I mentioned it not to hold it up as a prime example of anti-squee, but just to say that there are interesting things being done that stand outside of the expectations of squee. Yeah. And I don't know, anti-squee would be like Thomas Ligotti. And I, I always recommend him. I'm always talking about him, but he doesn't factor into the discussion. He's not part of the mainstream. He's, he doesn't matter to this, right? No. So I, I'm mentioning mainstream works that could point the way or at least signal something new. Okay. Well, cool. All right. So we've been talking for a long ass time. So I think we'd better wrap it up because this essay, this episode is going to be huge. Uh, Woo! Before, before we go, where can our listeners find your work? Right now, we are bringing back the pod hand as soon as my co-hosts come back from wherever they are we have some great stuff lined up very good i'm glad to hear it all right and i'd I'd better sign off because the cats are getting very impatient for their treats all right that is all for this episode thank thank you you for listening if you like what you heard head on over to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe until next time keep writing good this has been write good with raquel s benedict Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>